This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Latif Tariq, Assistant Professor of History and History Program Coordinator at Elizabeth City State University. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Raymond Winbush, a research professor and director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University. Dr. Winbush and Dr. Denise Wright co-edited the book, The Osiris Papers, Reflection on the Life and Writings of Dr. Francis Cress Wilson. Ray, thank you for this interview today. Good to be here, Terry. All right, so we're just going to go ahead and get started with question one. Uh, Ray, why do you why did the editors choose to title the size papers, and why is the life and works of Dr. Francis Cress Wilson an important figure to study within the field of African American studies and Black life? Well, the title we debated it back and forth, but we decided to uh, choose the Osiris Papers because. As you know, Dr. Welsing's book was called the Isis Papers, and Isis was the god of the living, uh, the most high god within uh, Egyptian cosmology. So Osiris was the brother-husband of Isis and the Egyptian god or judge of the dead. So we just thought that would be a balance. We're always looking for balance in what we do. Uh, African people, and we thought it was a good balance between the husband and the wife of uh, the living and dead out of Egyptian cosmology. Yeah, I, you know, and I think, in fact, I know that studying uh, Francis Cress Welsing uh, is so critical because there are very few theories among Black scholars about the behavior of white people. We have a lot of books about, you know, why black folk do this, why black folk do this. But we never have or haven't had that many books except the ISIS papers and a couple of others about the behavior of people classified as white. And that's what we uh, assembled in our book. And that's what Dr. Welsing talked extensively about. Okay, so when you think about the title, the Osiris Papers, and then the title of the ISIS Papers, you're really talking about an aspect of African duality and sentiment. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, the whole idea of, you know, Kemetian, you know, theology, and as opposed to Western theology, is to separate men and women. We wanted to join together them in life and death, Dr. Welsing in life and death. Uh, her mentor, Neely Fuller, said the best way 
of remembering Dr. Welsing uh, was to commemorate her by speaking her name and writing books about her. And we hope that this is the first of many books that are uh, will be written about what I consider one of the greatest thinkers in the past 75 years in this country. All right, so this actually follow up right into question number two. Explain to the listening audience about the works of Dr. Wilson, such as The Crest Theory of Color Confrontation and Racism, White Supremacy, The ISIS Papers, The Keys to the Colors, why do you think the mass media has ignored her 50 years of work explaining the system of scientific racism and global white supremacy? Well, that's an excellent question. I'm going to try to answer some of that. It's a big question. First of all, you find, again, as I said earlier, very few books that talk about the nature and behavior of white people. Uh, there just simply aren't that many books out there. I can think of uh, what Bogo's book, uh, uh, the Prehistoric European Origin of Racism, Marimba Ani's book, Yurugu, and an African-centered critique of European thought and behavior. But we rarely hear the media talking about the behavior of white people. We see the results of what they do. We see the results of their history towards black people. But we don't ask the question why. And as a psychologist myself, and as Dr. Welsing as a psychiatrist, she wanted to know why did white people act the way they act. And white people have always tried, and the media have always tried to cast racist behavior, be it the lynching of black people, be it the transatlantic slave trade, whatever, as some kind of aberration. It, you know, it's unusual for white people to do that. When in fact, on a global level, you see people classified as white invading, maiming, and killing people of color all over the globe. And so what Dr. Welsing asked was, why is it that they do that? And media don't want to answer that question. They'll talk about racism and, and very, very superficially. But she talked about it very forthrightly going into the mind and actual behavior of people classified as white. And if you go into that, it's a very unpleasant subject, which the media wishes to avoid. Okay, I'm actually going to read Dr. Wilson's definition. And this is part of, um, this is from the book, The Osiris Papers, on page two. And Dr. Wilson, she said, Racism, white supremacy is the local and global power system and dynamic, structural and maintained by persons who classify themselves as white, whether consciously and subconsciously determined, which consists of patterns of perception, logic, symbol, formation, thought, speech, action, emotional response, as conducted simultaneously in all areas of people activity, economics, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war for the ultimate purpose of white genetic survival and to prevent white genetic annihilation on planet Earth, a planet upon which the vast majority of people are classified as non-white, black, brown, red, and yellow by white-skinned people and all of non-white people are genetically dominant in terms of skin coloration compared to the genetic recessive white 
white-skinned people. Um, with have read that, yeah. Um, thinking about her definition, considering the level of police brutality in America, America has witnessed in the last decade, how does her definition define the relationship between people of African descent, people of color, and their relationship to American governance? Man, that's an excellent question. Uh, and Dr. Wilson answers it. This is one of the longest but best definitions of racism, white supremacy that has ever been written. I think it is the best. What Dr. Welsing posits, and it's truthful, is that white people are the world's minority in terms of racial classification. Only 8 to 10 percent of the world's population can be classified as being white. Um, that's why I use the term, and she did as well, people classified as white. They are a minority, but psychologically, we start referring to ourselves as a minority. So you hear that phrase all the time, we're a minority, we're a minority. You know, And I'm talking about black, brown, uh, Asians, and Latinos will say that. What she argues is that because they are a minority, they are constantly worried about being genetically annihilated. I have a colleague of mine at Morgan State who says that if the present rate of interracial relationships continue, there will be no more people classified as white within 600 years. So when you hear Klansmen and other white supremacists say things like, they're going to wipe out our race or the white uh, minority is threatened, they're really talking from their reality, which is you know, accurate. So Welsing argues that because of their minority status, it is in their best interest to kill, maim people of color. So when we talk about so-called police brutality, which I prefer to call just white aggression, that is something they're doing for survival. They're in a survival mode. And White people don't want to say that, but that is the truth. We see it, you know, occasionally when people say they're wiping out the white race. They're replacing us. The people in Charlottesville that marched a couple of years ago said, you will not replace us. And they were talking about uh, Jews of the Semitic, uh, I'm Semites of the Jewish religion, but they were still talking about non-white people. So police brutality is part of the historical violence that white people who are a minority exhibit towards black people. Uh, and it's something that is not just in this country. It's with the aboriginal people of Australia. It's in South Africa during the apartheid era. It still exists, of course, in this country, all over the diaspora. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So we can conclude that part of this system is also global. So you can look at wherever white colonial settlers, such as in South Africa, Kenya, 
um, Brazil, other parts of the Western world, Eastern and Western world. That is, is it a part of their fear and which comes with them from Europe? Where do we place this fear? Where did this fear start? Well, you know, Wabogo goes into that a lot in his book. Uh, But I, you know, and Welsing does as well. The fear is because they're a minority. They fear that they're going to be wiped out. It's interesting when black men were lynched in this country, literally hanged, the prize of the person who organized the lynching was the phallus of the black male. They would literally castrate him. That This is the only country where that happened. But the, the prize to say you, and, and what were they castrated for? Because the, allegedly they had, you know, whistled at a white woman like Emmett Till or the accusation leveled against Emmett Till in 1955, which was, as we know now, was a lie. The idea of white womanhood, you know, is something that is so innate that about being violated by black men that Chuck D uh, of Public Enemy created and wrote an entire album called Fear of a Black Planet, in which he dedicated, by the way, the album to Dr. Wellesley. And he talks about, you know, there's that rap in there, white male, white woman, female, white baby, black male, white female, black baby. And then all of the other combinations turn out to be black. So white people, and particularly the white male, he has historically aggressed towards African people, towards, you know, Chinese people, all people of color, because there's a fear of being genetically annihilated. They operate out of fear. And the phallus, as Dr. Welsing said, is the greatest fear because they know that within the, uh, the phallic and the sexual reproduction of males, black males, is the potential for the annihilation of white race. It's a, it's, it's a theory that more and more people say is the most logical way to explain why white people are so afraid of black people. Okay, thank you. I'm actually going to follow up with question Eight. And the reason I'm going to follow up with question eight, because it's very in line with what you just discussed. In chapter nine of the Osiris Papers, the chapter is titled, The ISIS Paper Revisited the Politics Behind Black Male Sexuality, written by Denise Wright. She wrote, the making of a white hegemonic world focused on the roots of hegemony, how it grew through the propagation of pseudo-scientific inquiry and propaganda, which dominated the Europe, Europe's Enlightenment period and coincide with the height of the slave trade. What do you think? Why do you think Dr. Wilson, what, excuse me, what do you think Dr. Wilson would say about the state of white supremacy today? How are the political, and I'm going to just stop there mm-hmm. and then I will continue with the second part of the question. What do you think Dr. Wilson would say about the state of white supremacy today? Well, she predicted it. Um, just a month prior to her death in uh, 2016, Dr. Welsing said that the uh, United States, the next United States presidency would go to Donald Trump. And people thought she was crazy. In fact, a lot of black folk thought, oh, that's impossible. 
he's a joke, a clown, a media star, whatever. Well, she was correct about that. Uh, she would say that what is happening in the world today with the Black Lives Matter movement and and all of the things surrounding the death of uh, Mr. Floyd, she would argue that this is predictable given the threat that Black people, in, in white people's opinion, pose to um Black, uh, white people. You know, I often think that black people underestimated the anger and the fear that white people had when Barack Obama was elected president. You know, black folk in general rejoice that we got a black president. His, you know, presidency was symbolic, you know, healthy black family and so forth, scandal free administration. White people felt threatened by that because the most powerful office ever created by humans has been the presidency of the United States, even more powerful than the Caesars of Rome. And to see this in the hands of Black people fed the psyche of white people that we are threatened by them. They're taking over. Donald Trump is the president that they thought Barack Obama would be, that he would get in office, be a clown, mess up, be, his administration be full of scandal. And in fact, that has happened you know, in the pre- Trump presidency. So Dr. Welsing would see Trump as a manifestation of white anxiety over the election of Barack Obama. And, she, and, and the reason why she predicted and was correct that he would become president was because we had given what we deem by white criteria, the best person we have, you know, again, intact family, no scandal, highly educated husband and wife, two beautiful daughters. And they said, well, look, what we'll do is cheapen the office by giving you our worst white man, who is Donald Trump. Okay. Thank you. Dr. Wilson is considered to be among the radical school of black psychologists, along with Dr. Bobby Wright Jr., Dr. Wade Nobles, Dr. Amos Wilson. She debated eugenist William Shockley on Tony's Brown Journal in 1974. Why was her position radical for the time considering the state of black education, mental health, and growing attacks by the white citizen towards black people today? And how is her work critical in understanding American society. Well, it it was radical for the day. Her work was radical for that day because in the 70s and even in the late 60s, when Arthur Jensen, a Berkeley professor, said that black people were genetically inferior to white people, especially with regard to intelligence. White people have been saying that so-called white pseudoscientists have been saying this throughout the course of, you know, American and global history that they were superior. You know, the Caucasoid race was the most superior race, especially with uh, intellect. Dr. Wilson challenged all of this by not only debating successfully Arthur Jensen, but calling into question uh, white feelings of inferiority towards Black excellence. Um, That debate occurred uh, it was followed by Bobby Wright, who I went to school with 
at the University of Chicago. And when Bobby wrote the psychopathic racist personality, he talked again, was one of the early people that talked about the mind of the white person, like Dr. Welsing was talking about the mind of the white uh, person. And to follow that, Wayne Nobles, with his purpose, uh, paper, the, um, what was it called, that, towards an African-centered black psychology or something like that, African-centered psychology. And all three of these talked about the behavior of white people. Black, white people did not want to hear that. And unfortunately, a lot of black people didn't want to hear it. They'd rather have us be blamed for our own you know, situation. So like if you read the 1960s report about the Moynihan report, all of this stuff emerged at the same time. There was a full frontal attack on the black pathology or what was called black pathology by the white uh, scientific community. And Dr. Wright and uh, Dr. Uh, Wells encountered that. And Dr. Nobles, a little bit later on, countered all of that with their own theory. And can you kind of explain how their theories was opposite of the bell curve theory? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were direct opposites. I mean, first of all, you know, white folks, I'm a psychologist, so I've given IQ tests. And IQ tests, only thing they measure is how good you can do the test. They have nothing to do with intelligence. And there's been, several, you know, the Larry P case, a very famous case in the 1970s, talked about that. The so-called bell curve was written later on by Richard Herstein, another white supremacist, so-called scientist who was teaching at Harvard at that time, I believe. And his argument, again, on the bell curve, which is, I don't want to get deep into the weeds, but the idea that genius was primarily reserved for white people and definitely not in the rare cases that Black children or black adults, for that matter, scored high on the IQ test. They were the exceptions rather than the rule. So the book, The Bell Curve, Arthur Jensen's research, all of those, you know, William Shockley, all of those people, they are kind of they they were trying to inferiorize black people based on this so-called bell curve or statistical analysis. The, the ironic thing, and I've written about this, is that Asians score higher than white people on so-called IQ tests, but white people are reluctant to say that they are inferior to Asians. So it, it was a political, the, the IQ test has always been a political instrument when it was invented by Lewis Terman way back in the 1920s. It was deliberately uh, put there to make sure that Blacks, at that time, uh, Southern European immigrants and Asians were excluded from participating in mainstream America. Okay, thank you. I was kind of intrigued in the book, um, the term Bronzeville, yeah. um, which relates to the Chicago community in which Dr. Wilson grew up. What examples of her community helped to develop her cultural orientation and what impact did Chicago in terms of being a cultural hub for black life help to encourage her? It, it is, it's inestimable how much Dr. Welsing 
would have been otherwise had she not been raised in Bronzeville. Keep in mind, she came from a third generation, not second, but third generation of Black physicians. The Cresses were one of the most prominent families in Chicago at that time. Uh, Bronzeville, you know, it's interesting that all Black communities have these, you know, Black enclaves that are considered the, you know, that they produce Black genius. Harlem, for example, Bronzeville, Beale Street used to be that way in Memphis, Uh, Tuskegee down in Alabama. And Bronzeville was the place where the Savoy Ballroom was, where Black excellence just came out of it. Uh, And she was raised in that environment. She had good role models. She had strong role models, including members of her own family, uh, the Crest sisters. There were three of them. Uh, and Frances uh, was just one of the, you know, they were like the darlings of the community as they grew up. When she went to, you know, Bronzeville is just like, it's almost like an incubation and still is for that matter. Not as much as it was during the 1940s and 50s, but it still is an incubation an incubator, rather, for uh, Black talent and Black genius. I was there just a few weeks ago um, for a funeral for one of my comrades, Conrad Warreal, Dr. Conrad Warreal, and uh, he had his office in Bronzeville. So it's just just a beautiful community in which he was raised. Who is Neely Fuller, and how did the United Independent Compensatory Code System concept impact Dr. Wilson's Black Social Theory? And what is a Black Social Theory? Well, well, these are some big questions, but Neely Fuller was, or well, was uh, Dr. Francis Crest Welsing's mentor. She tells the story, and I've heard her tell it many times, that she was at a Black Power conference in the late 1960s in Baltimore, I mean, I'm sorry, in Washington, and she heard she was just standing there milling around, you know, drinking some punch and so forth. And she overheard a man in the corner say that racism is a system and not just a behavior. And she said a light went off in her head when she heard that. Racism is a system. And she that's how she met Neely Fuller. Neely Fuller had uh, written literally 1,500 handwritten pages of what ultimately was called the code about white behavior and the nine areas of white supremacy. She became his mentee. They uh, teamed up for many, many years, almost 40, almost 50 years. They lectured together, did a lot of work together. When I was teaching at Fish University, I brought them for many occasions down to talk together. And the code is basically what and how white supremacy manifests itself in what areas, those nine areas of economics, education, and so forth. What Dr. Welsing did as a psychiatrist was say, why do white people act this way? Why do they get suntans during the summertime? Why do they hate us? Chuck D said in his album, Fear of a Black Planet, they hate us because they ain't us. And we are always talking about being like them, unfortunately, 
but they envy us, our skin color, our hair, our ability to sing, our ability to think, to be creative, all of this stuff. It comes from their envy of us. And so Neely Fuller talked about the what, and Francis Wellesley talked about the why. Okay, I'm going to read a passage from page 28 in the Osiris Papers. Um, the title, the subtitle is Francis Crest Wilson and the African Center School of Thought. In the quest of African Center scholars to create a Black social theory, it is important that we define African centeredness. African centered represents the concept of categorizing a quality of thought and practice which is rooted in the cultural image and interests of people of African ancestry and which represents and reflects the life experiences, history, and traditions of people of African ancestry at the center of analysis. African centeredness is there in the intellectual and philosophical foundation upon which people of African ancestry should create their own scientific and moral criterion for authenticating the re reality of African human processes. It represents the core and fundamental quality of the beingness and becoming of people of African ancestry. In essence, African centeredness represents the fact that human beings, people of African ancestry, have the right and responsibility to center themselves in their own possibilities and potential and through the recentering process, reproduce and refine the best of themselves. Mm -hmm. How did the African-centered thought movement and Afrocentricity impact the hip-hop generation, the rap group Public Enemy, and all of the other generations who did not know what African-centeredness was? Well, you know, since the 1960s, there has been, Bobby Wright used to say, we need, an, you know, a theory, a Black social theory. He was the one that first used that term. We had had historians, you know, John Henry Clark, but we didn't have a theory about what the world was like. And so when Wade Nobles came along with his book, his that very short paper that he wrote, and other Black scholars, we met in Atlanta. And I'm saying we because I was at some of those meetings. Bobby Wright, Naeem Akbar, Wade Nobles, uh, Asa Hilliard. And we met at the... Uh, the uh, what was the name of the hotel? I'll think of it in a minute. But we met there for a period of over two years and started developing what is now called a black social theory or Afrocentricity. Um, Malefi Asante, the head of black studies at Temple University, used the term Afrocentricity in some research that I had done in Ghana about 20 years ago. I found out that W.B. Du Bois used the term Afrocentricity as early as uh, 1959. The theory in sum says this, why not look at the world through a black lens or an African lens rather than a white lens? So if I'm looking at the world through a white lens, uh, I was taught in the fourth or fifth grade that the pilgrims and explorers of New York were very clever because they bought Manhattan Island for $24 and some beads. And that was supposed to make us feel like white people were smart and Indians and Native American people were stupid. Um, from an African point of view or from a non-Eurocentric point of view, you say, well, that was a pretty good deal. 
because Native American people said no one can own the land. The land belongs to the great spirit, to the creator. So let's take these white folks' beads and whatever this thing they have called money and say, yeah, you can have the land. That's an African-centered point of view. So, I, you know, when I look at the world as an African, I should say, what does this mean for black folk? How do I interpret the French Revolution? How do I interpret enslavement, the Civil War, Donald Trump's presidency from a point of view of an African rather than a European? So we hear all this stuff, these tearing down of statues right now. People say, well, Thomas Jefferson was a great man. So was George Washington, Benjamin Franklin. But an African said they were all enslavers. They raped women. They did things that were unholy, if you please. And that's how we're going to begin our analysis. So an Afrocentric world of view means, simply means that you're going to view the world through a Black lens rather than a European. Okay, thank you. Um, Paul Coase, the founder of Black Classic yeah. Press and the father of famed African-American writer Tallahassee Coates, published the Osiris Papers. Um why is this important to the legacy of Dr. Wilson? Well, first of all, we knew when Denise and I got together and I approached Paul about publishing this book, I, there was no way that I would publish this with a white publisher. There was no way. And uh, so the, the only, there's only two main black publishing houses in the United States, Third World Press in Chicago and Black Classic Press here in Baltimore, where I live. And um, since Baltimore was closer, we and we knew Paul. I said he's the logical person, uh, you know, to publish the book. And he was enthusiastic about it. Uh, we looked at the nine areas that Mr. Fuller and Dr. Welsing talked about, and we made sure that we got someone who knew about that area as an expert to talk about it. So, for example, religion. Uh, I knew Jeremiah Wright. And that's one of the areas of white supremacy. So I called the reverend up and he said, yeah, I'd be happy to do it. I knew Chuck D very well from Public Enemy. So I called and said, look, Chuck, why don't you write the chapter about entertainment along with uh, Anthony Brown, who has written a lot about uh, blacks in the media. So we got experts, people who knew Dr. Welsing, had heard her, had read her writing had them write one chapter each about uh, on each of the nine areas. And Paul is publishing it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you're fine. It's interesting um, how Dr. Wilson never really reached mainstream prominence per se in, in, in Black America or America as a whole, but yet a lot of the references to the ISIS papers was mentioned in Boomerang um, with Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence. If you watch the beginning of the movie, Baby Boy, there's analogies there. Uh, you've mentioned Fear of a Black Planet, which is the album by the rap group Public Enemy. Why do you think certain segments of the black community understood what she was trying to say? Because black folk have a better understanding of racism, white supremacy than white folk. And I'm glad you mentioned those three art forms, movies and so forth. Uh, you know, 
the mainstream white people make bad minorities. They're, they're not good minorities. Black folk, unfortunately, are very good minorities. We know how to act. White people don't feel comfortable talking about themselves. Um, and the mainstream media would never. Now, some black media interviewed Dr. Welsing all the time. The ISIS Papers was the number one selling book of Third World Press, Hakeem Adubuti's uh, publishing house in Chicago for years. So, you know, white people don't like you to turn the mirror on them. And and when you do, you get oftentimes get a violent reaction. Usually those people who appear on television in the black community talking about race are either super slaves like... uh, Stacy, whatever her name is, um, or they're people who are more integrationist. Uh, Dr. Welsing was a black nationalist. So is uh, Neely Fuller. And the theory, that's reflected her political viewpoint, but she wanted to zero in on understanding the minds of white people. And white people do not want to look at that. They don't want to see their behavior as being something that's long-term, going back in prehistoric times up till today. I mean, when we saw the killing of uh, George Floyd, you know, the eight minutes and 46 seconds, and it's been said before, he had his hands in his pocket. He looked nonchalant. How can a human being do that to another human being? And as Frank Wilderson says in you know, his new book, Afro-Pessimism, he said, no matter what Black people do, and Welsing echoed the same thing, no matter what Black people do, if we invented a cure for cancer, AIDS, and the COVID-19 virus and sold it for $5, white people will still view us as subhuman. And that's a liberating thought. But they don't want to admit that. You know, they don't want to admit that there is something about them that needs to be studied because of the history of violence. Uh, Most of the statues that are being torn down right now in the United States are being torn down by white people. And white people are more interested in changing statues and tearing down statues than they are tearing down the system of white supremacy. Dr. Welsing, Mr. Fuller, Wade, Bobby, Conrad were real, my late colleague, they were interested in tearing down the system. And, and, and by tearing it down, the way you begin is to understand how people classified as white think. Okay. In closing, why would you encourage Generation Y and Z, along with those who have never heard of Dr. Francis Cressa Wilson, to study the ISIS papers and the Osiris papers? Because as Malcolm said, history, and we sometimes quote this without really thinking, history is our best teacher, not one of our best teachers, but it is our best teacher. Um, I'm a little uh, you know, discouraged when I see, you know, during the recent Black Lives Matter movement, people holding up signs that say, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not my ancestors out, you know, F you up, something like that. That shows a lack of understanding of our ancestors. Poisson L'Overture, Dessalines, Harriet Tubman, 
uh, Denmark, Vesey. These are our ancestors. And so in the Isis papers and the Osiris papers, both of those books contain an homage to Dr. Welsing, but they also you know, contain an homage to our ancestors who, despite all of this racism, all of this white supremacy, not only in this country, but throughout the Caribbean, the entire planet, that they, you know, persevere. They, and that they are the generation, I'm talking about these young brothers and sisters, they are the generation that our ancestors prayed for. And they've got to fulfill the mission. And we hope that the book that we offered, Osiris Papers, helped them to do that. Okay, I do have one final question though. And looking at the the, the riots and the protests um, in the last couple of weeks, we're seeing more of a multiracial coalition. We have seen this during the times of CORE and the times of SNCC. Why do you think there are some white people though within society who are out here protesting on the sides of Black Lives Matter? and other community organizations? Well, I think it's two reasons. I think, first of all, we had never witnessed, we saw the tape of Eric Garner being choked to death by a policeman, but that happened over a short period of time. Eight minutes and 46 seconds is a very long time. That's one reason. It was horrific, and they wanted to say something about it. The second reason is this, and and this sounds more pessimistic, There's only been one time in American history that white people have ever fought other white people on behalf of black people, and that was during the American Civil War. That was followed by 12 years after the war was, you know, ceased, fired. Uh, That was followed by 12 years of what was called the Reconstruction. And then white people in the North, white people in the South joined up in making sure that black people were oppressed again. I have told young people uh, during this period in several audiences, I have said, look, do not rely on white people to stay with you. Uh, we, We have to trust ourselves. We have to look at ourselves as being the source of our liberation and not white people. I have problems with the term white allies because in the past, those white allies have abandoned us. They have left us. Uh, I got a call from a white person the other day because, as you know, Sean King has said we should tear down white statues of Jesus, which I think is a very good idea. Uh, And she said, Ray, I think that goes too far. She was white. And I said, why does it go too far? Because you want to preserve a white Jesus? You want to preserve a white system of oppression as it relates to religion? And she had to really look inside of herself. So I think that white people join to say that they have something to do. I think they really were moved, some of them, by uh, the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and others. But don't re- they should not rely on that. They have to rely on the ancestors. And they have, they can, you know, white people have just been, fickle lovers when it comes to staying with us through the thick and the thin. They'll be with us through the thin, but they abandon us through the thick. How did you how did you all choose the contributors to the Osiris papers? <laughs> well, Denise and I literally got together. 
who did we know that knew Dr. Welsing? That was the number one criteria. Nobody in this book had not either met, heard, seen Dr. Welsing. That was number one. Secondly, we wanted a balance between men and women. And so we, we're very proud that that's in the book as well. Uh, thirdly, we wanted somebody to be able to write that would cite information and data uh, about whatever they were talking about. Uh, Chuck's you know, chapter and Harry Allen of Public Enemy, who was media assassin for Public Enemy, they dialogued about it, but gave us tremendous insight into what hip hop was all about as it relates to racism or white supremacy. So we chose them according to several criteria. There were some people who didn't want to write, and I'm not going to name them, but there were some people who were afraid to contribute to the book because they thought that them being associated with Francis Welsing, and for that matter, Denise and me, they thought it would hurt their career. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Uh, so it was a struggle. It took us four years to put this book together. And uh, if it weren't for Black Classic Press, it would never have gotten together. So it was a struggle. Uh, it took me longer and Denise longer to put this book together than any book that I had written or edited prior to this. But it's worth it because people are reading it all over the world, and I'm very proud of it. Thank you for listening to the podcast, New Books and Afro-American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Latif Tariq, Assistant Professor of History and History Program Coordinator at Elizabeth City State University. And the network thanks Dr. Raymond Wimbush for discussing the book, The Osiris Papers. Thank you, Ray. Thank you.